0: Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Welcome to our gathering. If you're a first-time guest this morning, we're so glad you're here. We have two weeks left in our Summer in the Psalms series, this week and next. And thus far in our series, we have established that the Psalms are unique in Scripture because they show us how we can talk to God. But specifically for this morning, we're going to see that the Psalms can also show us how we should think about God's promises. My name is Danny McNamara. I'm one of the newest members of the team here. I just want to say it's a privilege to be speaking this morning to you the word of god and i have enjoyed studying for this for this sermon and there's a lot here we have a lot to cover and i am praying for this time i'm praying for you i'm praying that god connects this sermon to your heart including the 3rd through 5th graders we know that god can do this and this morning we want to uncover the meaning of psalm 110 And explain it's significant for us here at Hill City. So, you might hear me ask the question as we're going through these seven verses. And it's short, seven verses. What is David doing in Psalm 110? And of course, this question has to do with David's literary agenda. And we're going to see that the psalmist David leaves us with a prophecy that I believe, based on its structure, has been partially fulfilled. And we're going to see this in verses 1-4, through but particularly verse 1. And then there's still part of this psalm that awaits final fulfillment. We'll see that down in verses 5 through 7. And one important question that has been impressed upon me from this psalm is this. What is God's overarching purpose for having the body of Christ, that is you and I, on earth after Jesus' resurrection? So I believe that this psalm will give us our marching orders our marching orders, so to speak. And you'll see that there's some military-type tone to this psalm. So we'll get our marching orders, and this psalm will leave us with a particular confession that, though familiar, is very meaningful. Now, before I read Psalm 110, let me make just a, just a, a comment about this psalm. First, for this particular psalm, David's authorship is very important to recognize. You're going to hear me highlight David as the psalmist, and this will become very important immediately right in verse 1. Let me read the psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So in verse 1, we're going to see this divine promise. And it's going to be followed up from the the psalmist in verses 2 and 3 with a reflection. So a promise, a divine decree, an announcement, followed up by a reflection. And then in verse 4, we're going to see another promise, a divine decree, an announcement from the Lord reported by David. And then in verse 5 through 7, we're going to see a final reflection from the psalmist. So for note-takers here this morning... And I realize it may be dark out there, but hopefully you can take some notes either on your phone or on paper. I'd love to see the third through fifth graders' notes this morning as a result of this psalm. Here's the five main points I want to highlight. Number one, I want to talk about God's divine invitation slash promise to David's Lord in verses one and two. And of course, in order to do this, we're going to need to identify who David's Lord is referring to in verse one. When it says, the Lord says to my Lord. That is the task of verse one. And this will set the tone for the rest of the psalm. We'll see that. Number two. So, number one, I want to talk about God's divine invitation or promise to David's Lord. Number two, I want to talk about the response of the king's people. We'll see this in verse three. Number three, I want to talk about the promise from God of a future priest king. The promise from God of a future priest-king. And here, we'll see an announcement of the new covenant. That is where you are seated this morning. You're a recipient of the new covenant promises. And by the way, what, this is prophesied about 1,000 years prior to when the new covenant arrives. This is amazing that this text, specifically verse 4, hung there in time for 1,000 years. And then, boom, goes the dynamite. In the New Testament. I'm thinking of Zechariah the priest, you know, when he's in Jerusalem on his priestly service. Similar to like when you, if you're in the military and you do your weekend service, you know, you're in the reserves. You do a weekend a month. There's Zechariah in the temple doing his priestly service. And boom goes the dynamite who appears to him in the Holy of Holies. Hey, your wife's pregnant with the forerunner of the Messiah. Number five. Number four, I want to talk about the victory and exaltation of the king in verses five through seven. And to be clear, we just read it together, five, six, and seven. But here's where the imagery of the psalm may bother us, and, and rightly so. We'll see why. Number five, I want to discuss our response to Psalm 110. So, the, the, the message, big idea, if you take nothing away from those five points or this psalm, take this. This is, the, this is a confession that we often hear. Jesus is Lord. This is the big idea of this this psalm. Jesus is Lord. It's a familiar confession, perhaps even a bit cliche, but, but what may not be as familiar to us is that Psalm 110 is primarily responsible for the Old Testament version of this confession. We say it a lot. Jesus is Lord. This morning we want to uncover what that confession means and why it's significant for us at Hill City Church. Let's pray. Father, we need you this morning as we approach your holy word. We thank you for Psalm 110. We recognize, Father, that without you, we can do nothing. You are the vine. We are the branches. This morning, Lord, we're asking that you will speak once again through your word, just like you did when you spoke these words to the psalmist David. Speak once again to us, Father. We thank you for your spirit inside of us that helps us apply these words to our life. Thank you for your son, whom we'll see in this very text. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Number one. God's divine invitation or promise to David's Lord. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David the psalmist records this divine announcement like a prophet would do. And here it starts out in line one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So notice the first line of the psalm. The Lord says to my Lord. Notice that we see the word Lord used twice in verse one. And depending on which Bible translation you're looking at this morning, now on the screen we have the ESV, and you may notice differences, particularly with the second Lord. You know, for instance, in the King James, or the New King James, or the NASB, or the NALT, the NLT, the, the CSB, the ESV, you'll see, you'll see that the first Lord is in all caps, but the second Lord is, is where the, the first letter is capitalized. Now, The all caps, this is a reference to Yahweh. This is the very personal name for God revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. I am that I am. This is the God, the one who's sovereignly independent of all creation, the covenant God of Israel. But in the second reference of verse 1, we see that only the first letter of the word Lord is capitalized. And this second reference refers to a future descendant of David. Here's where the Davidic authorship of this psalm becomes very important. But notice that the referent is not explicitly identified here with a proper name, like the first use of the Lord. So who is this Lord? Who is this Lord that David speaks of? This is where Psalm one hundred and ten one gets exciting for us. I know it did for me. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to preach this psalm, and here's why. This is the most quoted psalm in the Old Testament. Uh, this is the most quoted Psalm. This is the most quoted Old Testament text, rather, in the New Testament. So, therefore, we could go to a few places, but for now, let's go to Matthew 22, 41 through 46. And feel free to go with me in your, on, on your, in your Bibles or on your phone. It's going to be important for you to see that in Matthew 22, in the temple precinct during Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life, Jesus applies this psalm to himself and ironically in the temple precinct it was the pharisees who were the ones who attempted to riddle jesus up to this point i mean in mark's rendition of this i think it was the sadducees who remember when they presented the hypothetical situation about marriage you know if this if this person marries and then dies if this person marries and then dies if this person marries and then dies you know it's like they're trying to riddle our lord jesus and look at, look at Jesus here. You'll, you'll, Jesus will demonstrate in Jerusalem during the last week of his life that he is the one with ultimate authority. And more specifically in this specific situation, he is the one with the authoritative, he's the, he's the authoritative interpreter of Scripture. You know, at any place in the New Testament where we can see the interpretive rules that Jesus plays by, it's awesome. So look at this. Here's Matthew's report. Matthew 22:41 41 says this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees said to him, the son of David. I need to say right here, though, this, look at, notice what Jesus did there. He's a great teacher. He's, it's like if he's the, he started his classroom with a chain link that everybody could grab onto. I mean, it's, it's what good teachers do, right? start with something. Get consensus in the room. Get everybody shaking their head. Yes, yes, yes. That's what good teachers do. We can all agree on that. Jesus got consensus on a very important point. Now watch what he does. He hooked them. And this is going to be important for what follows. Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, and here's the psalm, that we're looking at. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. From that day, did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? Now notice the failure on the Pharisees to answer Jesus' question. The ultimate point that Jesus is trying to make is that there's someone greater than David here. He's right in front of you. I mean, I could picture Jesus like winking at them. It's like, hint, hint. Even though, and, and even though Jesus isn't at the right hand of God yet. Several more comments we could make. First, in a patriarchal society where the father of the dynasty is the usual recipient of the honor, Psalm 110.1 points to the honor of the king's lord. In this case, David's lord, which would be his descendant. So Jesus here exploits the unusualness of Psalm 110.1, and, and regardless of the Jewish tradition about this psalm or the messianic tradition at the time, this is not an exegetical riddle that is out of reach for the Pharisees or hermeneutically impossible for them. Jesus' question is fair, it's legitimate, and their lack of response demonstrates the lack of understanding, which is a major theme in Matthew's gospel, and by extension, I'll just say this: anyone in the theater this morning who would remain apathetic about this question that Jesus raises has put themselves in a very precarious position. And we're, and, and the rest of Psalm one ten one will play this out. Now, it's interesting to to think about as a thought experiment in my own head how much of the context. Uh, when Jesus cherry-picks Psalm 110.1 into Matthew 22, into this scene at the temple precinct, how much context comes with that actual sentence? It, and I picture it like a, like a handle on a suitcase. You know, it's like, does this whole psalm come into this episode? If it's true and you're here this morning, if that's true and you're here this morning you're apathetic about that question that Jesus raised, you're in a precarious position. We're going to see why. Now, now, as I said, to be sure, Jesus is not yet at the Father's right hand, and He will be in 50 days when He resurrects and ascends. Remember, this is during Holy Week. Now, at, the, at Psalm 110, at the time of its writing, it's looking forward to this future Davidic king. Remember, I said, it's a 1,000 years hanging there. And the point to say... That the lordship idea, this recognition of the authority of this figure, is the dominant theme that's going on in this Psalm one ten. Jesus is Lord again. Third through fifth graders, if you take anything, you would make me so happy as a teacher. I mean, that, that doesn't matter. But if you told your if you told your parents at lunch, if they said, "Hey, what's the main theme that you took away from that sermon?" If you said, "Jesus is Lord," Amen. That is the main theme. To be clear, Jesus is the ultimate referent of this second Lord in Psalm 110. 1. He is the divine Son of God. This is a prophetic psalm. And in Matthew's Gospel, we'll see that Jesus is the ever-present divine Son of God who has all authority, and I'm thinking about the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and on earth. then he gives the great commission go make disciples I will be with you all the days so Jesus is the ever-present divine son of God prophesied about a thousand years prior and he's the one who has all authority thinking about my own life all the authority in my own life Jesus has the authority to establish His rule, His kingship, and as as Matthew's gospel plays out, we're going to see that we know that this ends up being the church. Now, now that we have established this recipient of my Lord, look at this divine invitation and promise made to this Lord: "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." What is this about? Of course, it's throne room imagery this sitting at the right hand. For Jesus, this installation of sitting at the right hand of God happened shortly after His resurrection. We're referring to Jesus' ascension. You know, in, in Hebrews 1, 3, it says, When He made purification for sin of sin, Jesus sat down, or He sat down, at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And this language of sitting at God's right hand signifies a supreme place of honor. Now, My wife, Kara, she's left-handed, okay? So this is not a, and we always joke about how awesome it is to be Uh, left-handed. The right-hand imagery here is not a slam dunk on left-handed people in the room, okay? You know, as a kid, just this, as a kid, I I loved, actually, I tried to go from being right-handed to left-handed as a kid. I can remember it distinctly in my basement thinking, I want to be left-handed, and I tried, so in our basketball hoop, I just tried to be left-handed all the time. I used to love watching left-handed basketball players shoot the basketball. I loved it. I, I'm, I mean, this will date me. I grew up watching players like Chris Mullen from the Golden State Warriors. I mean, have you ever seen his stroke? It's incredible. This is long before Steph Curry ever showed up. I mean, it's, it's coming out of there. Oh, it's beautiful. I'm not left-handed. This is not a slam dunk on left-handed people. But who can sit with God in heaven at his right hand? Notice that God is the one responsible for this action of Jesus sitting at his right hand. And he's ruling there right now. But notice this last phrase, until I make your enemies your footstool. So, as one scholar has helped me notice, this scene here, this this sit at my right hand until, this until, this This is not the final setting. It's the prelude to world conquest, and we're going to see that in verses 5, 6, and 7. So, who are these enemies? I would submit these are all those who rebel against God. They reject the Messiah Jesus. These are the ones who sit there apathetically saying, "Mm, big deal. We can see from the Gospels examples of these enemies. They did not follow Jesus when he was on the ground to follow. And the footstool here would be a metaphor for submission, it's the image of triumph. The complete subjugation of the Lord's enemies. Look at verse 2. We get a reflection on this divine decree. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So here we see the beginning of that rule on earth. This language of this mighty scepter of David's Lord. I can hear echoes of that Daniel 7.13 14 language where the I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion it shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, this mighty scepter, it's a symbol of authority to rule. It's a demonstration of authority. Great power and authority is given to this king. You know, I'm thinking of the audience that took in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The audience that took in Jesus' words at the Sermon on the Mount you know, I, I can remember a thought experiment I did with one of my friends in Kansas City. We kind of role-played as if we were actually there at the Sermon on the Mount, and we took in Jesus' sermon. And we, were just, we were just having fun as, you know, as boys up in Kansas City, and, and we so, like, let's role-play that. Can you imagine, you know, on the ride home, fresh off of hearing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with your buddy, and you ask your friend, hey, what'd you think of that sermon? <laughs> it's kind of like you right now. What do you think of that sermon? <laughs> what do you think of that sermon of that guy? can you picture your friend saying, "Is I, right. you know, not too bad. I think, I, th- I think he could have used some more illustrations, you know, there's some pretty good rhetoric, you know, he connected. I mean, I'll never forget Matthew 7 where the, you know, the people that left said, wow, he spoke as one with authority, Think about that. I mean, think about when he says to the two fishermen, hey, follow me, and they drop their nets and follow him. Who does that in the ancient world? Nobody leaves their father in the ancient world. And how expensive were those nets? This is incredible authority on the part of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's right here in Psalm 110. The Zion reference, you know, I would take this as a a reference to the city of David, came to signify all of Jerusalem. And we know that Jerusalem was where Christianity began. It became the main hub, the headquarters. Ironically, it was the most dangerous place to be a follower of the king. And Christianity is going to spread concentrically out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And by Acts 28, the gospel has made it to Rome. So this ruling in the midst of your enemies is important because we see here that Jesus' rule, his reign as a king, we need to understand what do we mean by the word power? I often think of the word power and authority in the local church. Like, oh, you're a pastor. You have some great power. What do you mean by power when you, when you, when you read about Jesus' power and how he wielded it? I mean This is like an upside-down kind of kingdom. This is where the one who was offended, namely God, initiates reconciliation with the guilty party, namely his enemies. In other words, when it says rule in the midst of your enemies, you need to think right there. I was an enemy and he reconciled me back to him. Jesus dies for his enemies. We were once enemies of the Lord Jesus and now we're seated at his table as believers we got to keep moving. Look at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. This is the response of the king's people. Look at this, your people. This is a reference to those who belong to the king. Look at these loyal subjects of David's Lord offering themselves in glad service. There's a willingness on the part of these people to serve the king. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. These people are not forced to serve the king. There's no coercion here. It's not forced labor. I just had a thought when I was milking cows. I used to think I was a slave. <laughs> forced me to milk cows. These willing subjects of the king are not forced. This is a willingness. I think, of the, I think of how this plays out in the early church. Think about how the willingness on the part of the king's servants even led them to martyrdom. To lay down their own life for this king. Think of Stephen in Acts 7 think of this. This is you and I right here in this psalm. Your people will offer themselves willingly. This is new covenant empowered believers. How are they so willing? I would submit to you that the Holy Spirit is the one who produces this willingness. We are referring to obedience from the heart that works from the inside out. This is obedience accomplished by God because it is God who is inside of us as the agent producing this willingness, this fruit It's production of fruit. It's a process. It's not an instantaneous event. Sometimes for me, it's two steps forward, one step back. Like, yes, I want to do that. No, I don't want to do that. I'm not willing. Think about where you're at in this. And what do members of the body of Christ do? This is that question that I raised. What's God's overarching purpose for having the body of Christ on earth after the resurrection? I mean, think about it. We could be at the right hand with him now, what do members of Christ's body do? Will they offer themselves willingly in service to the king. This is amazing. I saw this at Hill City this morning. For me as a staff person now, I'm here to serve, and when I lose sight of that, I'm a sitting duck. When I lose sight of that simple truth right there, that I am here to serve, I am a sitting duck. Our body of believers here, our local church, is a place where we can serve and mutually edify one another and build up in willing, glad service to this king. For each of us, this kingdom service may look different. Think about the people in this theater this morning. From an eye surgeon to my kids starting grade school on Wednesday, we're each here to serve the king. Whatever task he has called us to do, whether you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker, we must encourage one another in this endeavor Notice these willing servants come dressed in holy garments. They are ready for the task. Of course, this is figurative language, though somewhat cryptic here. But it's meant to highlight how the king's people are properly prepared for service in the king. You know, I'll never forget the roofer I used to work with. Who would get up on the roof without his tape measure. He used to drive me up the wall. He would always ask me, hey, do you have your tape on you? <laughs> I'm like, well, how did you get up on the roof without your tool belt on? Who comes to work like that? The Lord's working on me. You know, I I mean, I could be sarcastic. You know, my dad's a farmer, and his work outfit was the same every day. I can picture it right now. He would wear a pair of navy blue Dickies pants and a matching blue Dickies collared shirt. Every day to work. And in the pockets of those pants, he would always have a little six-inch crescent wrench, a little six-inch pair of blue... Blue handle, blue handle channel lock pliers, and a 12 foot tape measure. And if I ever asked him, hey dad, do you have a crescent wrench I could borrow? He would look at me and say, son, do I have my pants on? I mean, he was always prepared for the, any application that required a crescent wrench or a 12 foot tape or a pair of channel lock pliers. By the way, I'm from Meadville, Pennsylvania, the home of channel lock pliers, made fiercely tough in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Maybe they can make money on that commercial I just gave them right there. I'm proud of that. In the, you know, in the same way, the king's people in Psalm 110.3 are prepared to serve the king. How are you preparing yourself for service for the king? That's the question I think this morning for Hill City. What measurable steps are you taking right now? Who are you talking to about this preparation? Preparation and glad service for this king. We gotta keep moving. Look at this 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 language of the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. It's more figurative language here. And we've all heard the phrase at the break of dawn. You know, I I can I can remember seeing a heavy dew on the stems out in a hayfield before the sun evaporates the dew. It's one of the most gorgeous scenes I've ever seen. In the same way that the dew represents the start of a new day, the coming of a king to establish his reign on earth is the dawning of a new day. And just as the dawn gives birth to the dew and splendor in great, in great number, the future king will appear with all the company of his host. Now, I'm, I, when, I'm reminded of this quote I found a few years back. Let me read it to you. It's by G.K. Chesterton. This is dynamite. This got into me, when, especially when I think about the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. Look, listen to this. On the third day the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth And in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but the dawn. we got to keep moving. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind forever. You're a priest forever. He will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here we see another promise from the Lord. Like the one in verse 1, we see God swearing an oath. His word will not change. The king is introduced in verse 1. This king will also be a high priest. This is incredibly good news. What is a priest? And priests played an important role in the old covenant. They 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 served God by mediating before the altars. God wants to be in relationship with his image bearers. God has always been about the heart. From Old Covenant to New Covenant. From Genesis to Revelation, God has always cared about the heart. So these priests mediated between God and the people. They entered into the presence of God on behalf of the people. Think about this priest king and what he's going to do. But what about this Melchizedek? I mean, we're going to get into this when we get into Hebrew, starting August 22nd. We'll get there in Hebrew 7. But just think about this Melchizedek. You know, the two offices of king and priest were, were typically kept separate under the, the Mosaic law. And, and we know that David's not going to make the same mistake that King Saul made, because he tried to be a priest king. Yet we see that these two offices are brought together in this prophetic psalm. You are a priest forever after, you the king are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'd love to take time and talk about this Melchizedek, but let me say this. We can only imagine that David here recognizes that the Mosaic priesthood was lacking in some way. He was certainly aware of the scriptures that preceded the giving of the law. So we can plausibly think that David shares the knowledge of what Moses wrote about in Genesis 14 concerning this enigmatic figure named Melchizedek who was a royal king priest without lineage. I mean, you gotta, I would encourage you this afternoon, if you have time, drop down into Genesis 14 and read the event that takes place. And then just note, just, just take eight, verse 18, 19, and 20 and just kind of put a note card over it and you'll see like, oh my word, That was strange how this mysterious figure just pops down into the narrative and then boom, it picks right back up in 21 as if you didn't miss a beat in talking about this king of Sodom and how Abraham declined the offer that the king of Sodom made him. So David writes with a theological dog in the fight here about this incorporation of the priest-king, Melchizedek. It's telling what David does here. In sum, I would say this, David recognizes that his covenant with God, that is the Davidic covenant, would be the means by which the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled. There would be a correspondence between Melchizedek and this future king-priest. And of course, you and I at Hill City know this as Jesus Christ, the wonderful, merciful Savior. The priest, the great high priest, whose priesthood is grounded in his sinless perfection. We need this king-priest. Our sin is taken to this king-priest. We draw near to God through this king priest, Jesus the Messiah. But now look at these last three verses. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We have a great eschatological battle portrayed here. This is the battle. This language reminds me of the book of Revelation where no rebels will escape God's judgment. So what is described here in 5, 6, and 7 is that this priest king will accomplish what what he will accomplish over those who will not bow the knee in submission. We read about this bowing of the knee language in Philippians 2. And, and of course, we know that you will either willingly bow the knee in submission to the Lord and glad service to their King, or you will do it in a humiliated way. One day, Christ's kingdom awaits consummation. This is the day of wrath, this executing judgment among the nations. And by the way, this day of wrath, we know that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. So in a sense, the day of the Lord has been split between his first coming and his second coming. The first time he came to absorb the wrath of God as a baby in a manger, a king, prince, high priest. The second time he comes, he's coming with a sword in his mouth. that's dripping blood. Executing judgment among the nations. Judgment will bring death. I've done a few funerals in my life. They always come with a certain sobriety. Death is one of those things that gets everybody's attention. And there's evil in this world. There is evil in this world. And the kingdom of darkness is opportunistic. I saw a real example of this on the front page of the Springfield newsleader this week. Let's not act here at Hill City as if there's not a war between truth and error going on in Springfield. Let's wake up. I'm talking to myself with a sense of urgency. There are individuals who look at this king, this priest king, and they shake their fist at him. They tell him to fly a kite, and that's a nice way to say it, by the way. They raise themselves up to the right hand and rule as if they're the authority. And of course, as believers, we know that all people... We we as believers know that the problem of sin, the problem of evil, it doesn't exist out there somewhere as if sin is this abstract category. Sin is part of each of our stories. We always take our story into the text of Scripture. And so when we come to this text of Psalm 110, 5 through 7, we do not get mean to people or act like a self-righteous jerk. God's Spirit softens our heart and motivates us to love people we see in verse 7 that this king will receive honor and glory. Wow, he takes a drink from the brook. And this language of lifting up his head may refer to the renewed physical strength and emotional vigor provided by the refreshing water. Let's look at just the la- our response to Psalm 110. What does this text, how does this text want us to know, believe, feel, or do? I would say this. We get our marching orders here in verses 5, 6, and 7. It's true. The final outcome of this troubled world is certain. And those who have trusted in this king-priest have nothing to fear. But like I said earlier, this text bothered me a bit down here in verses 5 and 6. This is like imagery from Isaiah 66, 24. You should write that down, Isaiah 66, 24. Or Ezekiel 39, 11 through 16. When it takes seven months to bury all the dead bodies laying out in the valley. Seven months to bury that many corpses. I recently heard of a version of Christianity that involves too much Jesus. You know, it's like, we'll ex- you know, we want you to get saved. It's like what Stephen Ray said, you know. We don't want our kids to be too weird. You know, she gets saved, and then her family's like, oh, you're too radical. <laughs> It's like the minute you get radical about your faith and telling others, your family and friends signals to you to cool it, cool it. But there's this, even, there's this evangelistic thrust to this psalm, particularly in 5, 6, and 7. Part of our marching orders is to be serving our king, and we would all agree that this serving certainly involves missions. May God's Spirit soften our heart and motivate us to love people more. In the bottom line is that the reason I don't share the truth of the gospel is because I don't have compassion for the lost. We don't love people like our Lord loved people. God, help us. God, help us today to respond to this text. Move us, Lord. Remind us of our marching orders. May this text, this this imagery in 5-6 bother us. Yeah, this slogan, Jesus is Lord, is meaningful. It's more than a cliche or an abstract confession. When I say Jesus is Lord, what that means is that Jesus is reigning as the sovereign king right now, right now. This sovereign king is whom I have given myself willingly to. No one has forced me into service for this king. I give myself willingly to him. Why? It's because he is the king and he loves me, warts and all. We will see in this psalm that this king is more than a king. He is a priest. This priest king is the one who has brought me near to God. And I can take refuge in the eternal priest king. We can have victory over sin and death. And my status this morning is secure. So when I say Jesus is Lord, there's a certain feeling that comes along with that slogan in my mind. That confession. Let me just say, we're a local church here in Springfield, Missouri, who wants to function like a body made up of many parts. So when we think about service to this king, we mutually encourage one another. And one way we do this is by eating a symbolic meal together. This meal is our weekly reminder of his body, this king's body, this king priest's body. Here, I think of verse 1. I think of verse 4 in Psalm 110. The body of this priest king was broken for us. Remember, reconciliation was something he did, he laid down his life for his enemies. His body was broken for us, and his blood was shed for us. When you look at the history of this meal and how it's been part of the church, it's amazing.